You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, 
let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 553 of this podcast. Today is Monday, February 6, 2023, and that was Genesis chapter 37, which is today's Bible reading for me. I am not going to read to you every day's Bible reading. I don't believe, I don't suppose. But this one in particular has been on my mind a lot here lately. I had an upsetting dream or a significant dream or a dream that I don't know what to make of, whatever you want to call it. I had a dream recently that was very vivid and it felt to me as though uh, maybe, perhaps, possibly it means something. And as I was trying to decide what to make of that possibility, I wanted to go back to the Word and take a look at the examples of dreams in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We should be going back to the Word and considering any time someone says they've had a dream, they've had a vision, they have a word from the Lord, whatever it is, we should be going back to the Bible and looking at the scriptures and making sure that we are rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. And so also, even if it's your own dream, maybe particularly if it's your own dream, you should go back to God's word and you should test whether there's any value to your dream or your vision or your word from the Lord or someone else's, whether there's any value to that, there will absolutely be value in God's word. And God's word is our guide. It is our instrument. Jesus sets the example in the desert, for instance, after he's baptized in obedience by his cousin, John, he goes into the desert by himself alone to be tempted, to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water, to be tempted by the devil. And when the devil comes, the devil quotes scripture to Jesus. It's interesting as well that the primary challenge for Jesus from a human standpoint in the gospels is the religious leaders. It's those who are bringing the scriptures to bear or questioning him on 
his interpretation of the scriptures or his application of the scriptures from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets. But when Satan quotes scripture or when the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes are quoting scripture, how does Jesus respond? One, he sometimes answers with a question in the case of those religious leaders, humanly speaking. But for two, particularly with the devil, also with the sons of the devil, as he calls them, he will quote scripture right back so as to rightly interpret and correct a misinterpretation or a twisting of the scriptures. And so that sets us an example in case somebody would try to be uh, tricky and misquote scripture to us as Christians, or in case we would be misunderstanding God's word or misunderstanding that God has spoken to us outside of his word. We go to God's word and we test everything according to the scriptures. It is written, Jesus says. So what do we do with this, right? Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Joseph has two dreams, one and then another. And in these dreams, his brothers and even his father and his mother are bowing down to him. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that they would be bowing down to him? Well, that means that he would have authority over them. He would be ruling over them, or he would be higher than all of them from a status standpoint, from a power standpoint. If they're bowing down to him, that is a gesture of submission. And that's a recognition that he is in charge. He has their lives in his hand. When he has the dream at 17, and remember, this is not a minor point. He's 17 years old, according to verse two. When he has this dream at 17, he is not actually in authority over either his brothers or his father and his mother. It's quite the opposite. Except for his father's favoritism, Joseph is low man on the totem pole. But all the more because he does have his father's favoritism and he's low man on the totem pole in in, in terms of uh, birth order. And he's also dealing mostly with brothers of his father's other wives. And so there's kind of an inherited multi-generational animus and rivalry going on there. Jacob's favorite being Joseph has a kind of opposite effect in terms of how his brothers are going to relate to him. That is, they resent that even though he's the youngest, he's the most favorite. They resent that because it doesn't work in their favor because the way that it should work in the interest of fairness, in the interest of a conventional family dynamic in those days and in our day in many cases, is that the eldest actually is the preeminent one. The eldest is the one who is going to be checking up on the younger brothers. The eldest is the one who's going to be running the family. Let's say when the father uh, passes away, 
or if he is too old to be able to get around and hear well and see well and think clearly and communicate confidently and authoritatively, the oldest brother is going to become something of the head of the family. But in Joseph's case, he is the youngest. And it's bad enough that he is their father's favorite. Then he starts saying that he's had these dreams. And put yourself in his brother's shoes for just a moment. Either A, he is having these dreams and they are from the Lord. And therefore, he's not just Jacob's favorite. He's also God's favorite, as in God has given more favor to Jacob than his brothers. That's a possibility, which if they were upset before about him being their earthly father's favorite, how much more upset are they going to be if he's their heavenly father's favorite as well? This goes back to the animus between Cain and Abel. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's, and that made Cain very angry. Instead of him resolving to do better and try harder and do some soul searching, he became angry and hateful towards his brother and then resolved to murder him. And this is where when Jesus talks about, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause has already committed murder in his heart. It's exactly that kind of relationship that he's describing. The relationship between Cain and Abel before Cain actually physically murders Abel. Murder is already in his heart towards Abel. So also, before anything has been done to Joseph, grabbing hold of him, stripping him, throwing him into a pit, they already have murder in their heart by virtue of their hatred of him. And their hatred of him is without merit. It is not justified. If he is destined and fated, if he is predestined, if you will, to rule over them by God's choice, then it is not a sin on his part to communicate that he had this dream. If it really is a dream from God, then how would there be a sin in his expressing, I had this dream? Now, if he's making it up, if he's telling a tall tale here because he's leaning into being daddy's favorite and this is a way of rubbing salt in the wound and testing them and provoking them just to assert dominance like he's going to make it into something of a self-fulfilling prophecy but the prophecy is actually just from his own subconscious his own imagination well then there too they might be angry with him albeit for different reasons they might be angry with him because He is a dishonest schemer, which kind of runs in the family. Let's be honest. There can be uh, something of a (laughs) multi-generational characteristic here, knowing that Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. They might be thinking, all the more galling would it be if Joseph is going to cheat us all out of our birthright and blessing because he's the youngest, but he is a manipulator. He's just like dad, right? And so there's a certain finding fault with their father in being so angry with their younger brother that they would want to kill him. 
just to be very clear, this is complicated. This is a complex family dysfunction problem that we are being told about. So what do they do? Interestingly, there is hesitation on the part of Reuben, for instance. Let's not kill him. No, let's not do this thing. This is a bad thing to do. No. But then Judah, and you can almost see the kinds of smiles, grins, cold-eyed stares that would accompany these sentiments. I can. I can just picture it. The wry grin, the cold, calculating, heartless hatred. Let's sell him, and then we'll have money. That would be better than killing him. Because Judah is still stuck on the idea of killing him, or at least making sure that he never comes back. So that accomplishes many things. One, you get some money. Two, you don't have to deal with Joseph anymore. Win-win. And so they do. They sell him. And now imagine what it's like to be in Joseph's shoes. How disturbing, how traumatizing, how upsetting, how painful would this be to be so humiliated by your own brothers, so hated by your own brothers, you almost can't enjoy, even before they throw you in a pit naked and then sell you, you almost can't enjoy your father's love for you so long as you pay any attention to how your brothers hate you. So then which is it? Do you ignore the fact that your brothers hate you and just enjoy the fact that your father loves you? Well, in that case, you might say things that get you into trouble. Again, this is a very dysfunctional family dynamic, but this is sin. And we say dysfunctional, but really there's sin here that needs to be reckoned with. It needs to be confronted. It needs to be put to death. It needs to be rebuked and repented of, and then it needs to be forgiven, but not so fast. And it's not happening quite like that in real time. And actually, if you read on, it turns out that the dreams Joseph was expressing come to pass exactly as he dreamed them. Exactly what he dreamt is what happens. Now, he dreamt symbolic things, figurative things, but all the same, they came to pass. Thereafter, he interprets dreams for the cupbearer and the baker of the pharaoh in prison. And those dreams also come to pass exactly as he interprets. And thereafter, when the pharaoh has a disturbing dream, an upsetting dream, a significant dream, whatever you want to call it, Joseph is remembered and called for and interprets pharaoh's dream. And there must be something to how we don't read a lot of whining, complaining, objecting on Joseph's part. He is wronged again and again, and we don't see him fussing about it. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't feel pain. That doesn't mean that he wasn't grieved. That doesn't mean that it wasn't upsetting and traumatizing and lonely and frightening. But it is to say, it certainly seems as though he maintained his integrity, his honor, his dignity, based on what is not said. And what very easily could have been said. It doesn't say that he begged. It doesn't say that he pleaded. It doesn't say that he griped. It doesn't say that he cursed God and died. He pressed on. And he continued doing excellent work. As we see when he shows up in Potiphar's, 
uh, household, Potiphar's household, ends up being run by him because he's so trustworthy. He's so excellent that he is head over the whole household, second only to the master. And then in prison, he is so excellent. He's so trustworthy that he is entrusted. And then when he's taken before the Pharaoh and he interprets the dream, there's something particularly special about Joseph and he is entrusted not just with his own fate, not just with the fate of a select few. He's entrusted with the fate of the entire nation because he has excellent character and because he has refused the two easy temptations to despair, to become embittered, to become hopeless, actually as well, to be vengeful because he could have so easily later on down the line, used his position to get back at his brothers, to get back at the ones who stripped him, humiliated him, threw him in a pit, debated whether to murder him, and then settled on selling him into slavery. Also, too, there's a kind of poetic justice to the 400 years of hard bondage to the Egyptians, which follow for the children of Israel, all the while, all throughout, if God is not intervening every moment to stop us from misbehaving, that is not to say that God is not aware or that he is asleep at the wheel or that he is apathetic or that he's approving for that matter. Yet what he permits can be evil and it can be meant for evil. And yet What is it that he does? He works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Called by who? Called by God, according to his purpose. But that's enough for now about Genesis and Joseph. Let's move on, if we can, to a man named John Taylor Gatto and a video that was sent to me by my friends, Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton. The two of them, I should say, did not both send me this video, but the two of them have introduced me to John Taylor Gatto here recently. And as such, when I listened to this video, A Short Angry History of Modern Schooling on YouTube, it's just a lecture. It's not really video except a still image of a factory from the Industrial Revolution. When I listened to this, Having written, and this is why we homeschool, having been homeschooled myself, having eight children that we are homeschooling, being part of a church where there are a lot of homeschooling families, being a big proponent of homeschooling at a time when we need more vocal opposition to compulsory public schooling, I listened to this lecture from John Taylor Gatto and even having an idea of some of what he had to say, knowing some of these things, nodding my head, being able to finish perhaps some of his sentences, still other things that he has to say here, I am going to need to reevaluate quite a lot in light of. I'll need to verify. I'll need to double check. I will need to confirm. I would like to read his books that are available on Audible. As part of my effort, I would also like to order a physical copy of his magnum opus so that I can quote from it and reference it more at my leisure. 
but I will put a link to his lecture in the description for this podcast episode, and you can check it out. I'm not going to play the hour and three minutes and 23 seconds long lecture on this episode because I don't think that would be fitting, but I'll put a link to it and you go check it out. Do. Do go check it out and see what you think. But what I will do for the purposes of this episode is I will talk about some of the things which have come to my attention per John Taylor Gatto's lecture here. And if true, what would that mean? And how should that change the way that we relate to our government, our popular culture, our media, our families, our churches. If we are the product of modern public schooling, how should that change the way that we think of ourselves? Those are some questions I want to get into. But first, let's talk about the video description on YouTube. A former New York teacher of the year, Gatto is probably the most interesting writer, speaker on education today. He shows that our bureaucratic schools and our bureaucratic society just get in the way of learning. He often contrasts modern America with 19th century America, where family work and democratic self-government let people educate themselves. His knowledge of the key players in the history of education is unparalleled. In July of 2011, John had a massive debilitating stroke that left him paralyzed on one side of his body through physical therapy. His speech is returning and he is able to write by typing with one finger. John is in need of financial support for his medical and rehabilitation expenses. Barb Lundgren manages this medical fund and posts regular updates on John's recovery at the website here, www.thejohntaylorgattofund.com. Full disclosure, I clicked through that link just to see what the website might be like. And it appears that that link is no longer active. I don't know if the website's been taken down or what, but I can say that Wikipedia lists him as having died back in 2018, October 25th, 2018. And so that could be the reason why the website was taken down and the fund would no longer be necessary But there's a biography here for Gatto, and it reads as follows at Wikipedia. Gatto was born to Andrew Michael Mario and Francis Virginia Gatto in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, a steel town near Pittsburgh. In his youth, he attended public schools through the Pittsburgh metro area, including Swissvale, Monongahela, and Uniontown, as well as a Catholic boarding school in Latrobe. He did undergraduate work at Cornell, the University of Pittsburgh, and Columbia, then served in the U.S. Army Medical Corps at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Following Army service, he did graduate work at the City University of New York, Hunter College, Yeshiva University, the University of California, Berkeley, and Cornell. By the late 1950s, he worked as a copywriter scripting commercials in New York City. In the spring of 1960, he borrowed his roommate's teaching license, went into Harlem to work as a substitute teacher. Gatto earned his teaching certificate in the summer of 1960. In 1963, he was hired as a full-time 8th grade English teacher at Intermediate School 44 on New York City's Upper West Side. 
Gatto moved on to Lincoln Academy, now Horizons Middle School, in 1981, which was considered a dumping ground for kids with behavior problems. Eventually, Gatto found a position teaching predominantly poor, at-risk kids, eighth-grade students at Booker T. Washington Junior High in Spanish Harlem. Gatto also ran for the New York State Senate, 29th District, in 1985 and 1988 as a member of the Conservative Party of New York against incumbent David Patterson. He was named New York City Teacher of the Year in 1989, 1990, and 1991, and New York State Teacher of the Year in 1991. In 1991, he also wrote a letter announcing his retirement titled, I Quit, I Think, to the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal, saying that he no longer wished to, quote, hurt kids to make a living, end quote. He then began a public speaking and writing career and has received awards from libertarian organizations, including the Alexis de Tocqueville 1997 Award for Excellence in Advancement of Educational Freedom. Gatto promoted homeschooling and specifically unschooling and open source learning. Wade A. Carpenter, Associate Professor of Education at Berry College, has called his books scathing and one-sided and hyperbolic, but not inaccurate, <laughs> and describes himself as in agreement with Gatto. Ron Paul strongly endorsed Gatto's work, calling him a, quote, legendary teacher, end quote, who helped shape his own thinking and homeschooling curriculum. Gatto was featured in the 2011 documentary film Indoctrination, public schools, and the decline of Christianity in America. In 2011, Gatto had two major strokes, which occurred after he completed the filming of The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto, which was released in early 2012 by Tragedy and Hope Communications. So the main thesis, right? What is Gatto's main thesis? Again, per Wikipedia, Gatto asserts the following regarding what school does to children in dumbing us down. One, it confuses the students. It presents an incoherent ensemble of information that the child needs to memorize to stay in school. Apart from the tests and trials, this programming is similar to the television. It fills almost all the free time of children. One sees and hears something only to forget it again. Two, it teaches them to accept their class affiliation. Three, it makes them indifferent. And by the way, may I just pause on this one? Point number three is a major difference between homeschoolers and public schoolers. And I say that as somebody who was homeschooled growing up, every time I've bumped into public school kids and seen them interact with my kids, or every time when I was a kid growing up, I would bump into public school students, rub shoulders with public school students. That was always the single biggest difference I saw was that I was enthusiastic about life and they were almost seeming to try to be apathetic. But then if their schooling actually produces that, that's actually part of the point of what public schooling does. Well, then it's interesting to see it show up in a list by John Taylor Gatto that it makes them indifferent. Point number four, or item number four, what schooling does to children. It makes them emotionally dependent. And I would assume here, 
he means emotionally dependent on one another, on their peers. Point number five, it makes them intellectually dependent. Point number six, it teaches them a kind of self-confidence that requires constant confirmation by experts, provisional self-esteem. Point number seven, it makes it clear to them that they cannot hide because they are always supervised. In considering this list, plus the lecture, which I want to talk more specifically about now, I realize a number of things can be true all at the same time. Similar to the uh, comment from Wade A. Carpenter, professor of education at Berry College, that Gatto's books are scathing, one-sided, and hyperbolic, but not inaccurate. It can be true that a accurate assessment of American public schooling, the progressive model of American schooling, is going to be abrasive. It's going to be off-putting. It's going to be upsetting. It's going to be disturbing. It's going to be scary in some ways. And it's going to hurt if you actually have invested yourself or were entrusted to the public schools. Okay? You with me so far? I think we can all agree it's going to hurt to hear that the public schools are a major problem. The public schools in America are a major part of what is wrong with America. From a human standpoint, it's not just, well, we have a sin problem and let's keep it very, very general, very generic, very simple like that. But specifically, how would it be if we had an academy that teaches sin? What would we say then? If we say we have a sin problem and then somebody says, yeah, and here is an institution from coast to coast that is trying to teach all of the children to be sinners and sinful and actually to be proud of rather than ashamed of their sin. Well, no, no, no. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about sin. Yeah, but this place, these people, this institution is teaching kids to sin, both by omission and commission, and to deny the truth about God, which is made plain, which he has made plain in creation. No, 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 no. And here's the problem, right? This is a complex concern because for one, to criticize public schooling is to criticize current and former teachers and school administrators and principals and superintendents because they worked in it. And what are you saying? That that was just a waste? What are you saying? That they did a bad thing? It's also to criticize, potentially condemn parents who have sent their kids or are sending their kids into the public schools to be schooled, to be indoctrinated, uh, really. At best, you are critiquing. At worst, you are rebuking those parents to criticize public education in a robust way, in a detailed way. And when you do that, if you do that, I guarantee you as a Christian, if you do that within the church as a Christian, you will immediately get a response that that's divisive. And I, I know this from experience. I'm not saying that theoretically or just from observing other people. I personally have observed myself 
getting rebuked because somehow it is divisive to critique the public schools, but it's not divisive to rebuke or critique somebody for rebuking and critiquing the public schools. I don't know how that works, that we think that somehow is not threatening unity. And it is interesting. All the calls for unity that you ever will hear in our context today, in a mainstream American Christian context, all of the calls for unity always just so happen to be about unifying on the progressive redefinition of some very self-evident and historically understood biblical term, concept, or truth. Funny how that works. Unity is always, hey, let's unify on the liberal theological position or the progressive theological position. Never on the conservative. Why is that? Hey, let's unify over here on the conservative position. I'm for unity. Unify on my position. No? Okay. Well, then I am going to call your bluff that this is about unity. I think you're bluffing. I think that's not really what this is. I think you want to silence criticism and disagreement and dissent because it makes you uncomfortable to think that you might be doing the wrong thing and you might have not known these things. And for me to tell you these things that you didn't know might imply that I know more than you and you don't like that. That's an uncomfortable thought. That's a vulnerable thought. You don't trust that. You don't like that. But is it true though? Right? That's that's the question from the top of this episode, reading through Genesis 37. Is it true though? If Joseph made up the dream, well then he's a schemer like his father before him trying to trick his brothers out of their birthright and blessing. If the dreams really were from God, and it turns out in the long run that they were from God, well then, is the big issue here that Joseph told them his dream? Or is the big issue here that because there were several of them and they were bigger and stronger than he was, they overpowered him, stripped him naked, threw him in a pit, and then debated whether to murder him or to sell him? Is the bigger issue that he brought this all on himself by provoking them? Or is the bigger issue that they determined the truth by counting noses and they were led around by their emotions and that they cared more about their own status and wealth and pride than they did about what was good and what was true? We know the answer, right? We know the answer with regards to Joseph and his dream, and we must know the answer with regards to the political problems of our day, which are at root theological problems of our day. Now, why do I say that? Take a listen to the John Taylor Gatto lecture here and consider what is expressed. The industrialists, the robber barons who made the biggest push for the progressive model of public schooling, compulsory schooling in the U.S., they were not operating in an altruistic fashion, in a values-neutral fashion, in a Christian charity context, not one that we would recognize or could affirm. And the reason we know this is because they also were proponents of eugenics. Now, that's not to say that American public schooling was the result of their beliefs about eugenics per se, although I would say that 
the way that they rolled out, implemented, structured, and supported compulsory public schooling, the progressive model of public education, was informed by, in some measure, their positions on eugenics. And yet I would say that both of those ambitions, programs, uh, objectives, campaigns, that's a good word for it, both of these campaigns, both on the eugenics front and on the compulsory schooling front, the public schooling, progressive model of public education front, both campaigns were motivated by the same thing for the same men. Insofar as all of the above believed that they were the pinnacle of human evolution, and we know, we know that they believed that because they, many of them, acted that way, talked about themselves and the masses that way, particularly in relation to eugenics. They saw public schooling as a way, according to John Taylor Gatto, as a way to manage the people of the United States of America like one great big cow herd. And how would it be if you were a cattle rancher and you had male calves being born and female calves being born, and you had some male calves who were small and weak, sickly, misbehaving. You had others that were big and strong and robust and docile enough, at least along the lines that you needed them to be docile, at least predictable. And how would it be if you were a cattle rancher and you didn't take care to ensure that the weaker or more troublesome cows, male calves, would stop breeding and would not pass on their genes to the next generation of your herd? How would it be if you didn't take steps to ensure the highest quality stock for breeding? How would it be if you didn't ponder, study, consider who were the best specimens in the herd and who were the riffraff that you wanted to weed out? How would it be if you didn't painstakingly track and quantify all of the important metrics that would determine whether this or that cow was going to be profitable to you? How would it be if you didn't study these things and then make your decisions accordingly? If you regard them as cattle, and if you regard the cattle business as profitable to you, and if you desire for it to become even more profitable still, how would it be if you neglected to take an active managerial role over which cattle breed and which don't? And what if, let's take this a step further, what if you contrived of a system whereby all of the cattle would be analyzed day in and day out, and you would determine which ones could breed, not just by you know outright mm, castration, although to be very clear, the early days of eugenics in the United States did see debate about compulsory sterilization of undesirables, those who were deemed the germplasm of society. The early days of eugenics did see women being given hysterectomies against their will without their knowledge or consent because they were 
considered unfit to reproduce. Men being given vasectomies without their consent, arrested, or shall we say, detained, taken in, sedated, and neutered because they were deemed unfit to reproduce. Some of the debate in the United States, and not fringe debate, by the way, we're talking intellectuals and academics from respected schools in respected medical institutions, and certainly at the highest levels of our economy, the men of vast fortunes who owned entire industries, the kingmakers politically, debated how active or passive eugenics should be. Should it be active to the point that we round up people we deem to be criminal, immoral, insane, ill, lacking in intelligence, physically unhealthy? Should we round them all up and exterminate them and thereby cleanse the human race? Should we gather them all up and spay and neuter them? These were debates. And in some pockets here and there, according to Edwin Black's book, War Against the Week, in some pockets here and there, people who were true believers in eugenics did those things. I think to test whether they could be done, but also too in hopes that those efforts would really take off. See, the problem was that America is a free country or regarded itself as a free country. There was the Constitution to think of. There was the Bill of Rights to think of. America was predominantly a Protestant Christian country. And this way of treating people like cattle is antithetical to what we're told by Jesus, what we read from Genesis to Revelation. This way of treating people, disposing of people, is antithetical to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the efforts, the arguments, couldn't go that direction here. Now, they did go that direction in Germany, and the Germans very self-consciously referenced what was happening in America, what was being discussed in America, and said, that's a great idea. Yes, we are the master race. But here in the United States of America, it was the people at the very, very top. It was the Kelloggs and the Carnegies and the so on and so forth who regarded themselves as the master race. And really, as gods, they were playing God. They weren't just playing shepherd in a sense. They were Wolves in sheep's clothing, ravenous wolves. And so far as they thought it acceptable for them to fund eugenics here, to promote these ideas, they were doing a very wicked thing and setting in motion a very wicked thing. You might call it an obedience factory. The Prussians developed it initially, and then it was picked up by John Dewey and others, Horace Mann, for instance, I didn't realize this. According to John Taylor Gatto, John Dewey actually went to China and spent two years there trying out these methods on Chinese children and paying close attention to their results and reactions and the performance. And that actually is part of the reason why China has a social credit score, I think, I suspect, because that took hold and was spread far and wide. That way of monitoring scientifically, supposedly scientifically, 
all of the children of the country to figure out where to put them is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from a one-child policy where you say, now it's in our economic interest to decide that you can only have one child and you need our permission. See, that's a default assumption there that you need the government's permission in order to have children because you're actually regarded as a slave, not as a free person. You're regarded as little better than livestock in that case. But John Dewey, he did these experiments over in China, came back to the U.S. and promoted this idea with help from others who were also of the same progressive mindset, this idea of compulsory schooling that would be controlled from the very, very top. And the progressives decided that American public education would be a great vehicle for the social and political transformation, and I would say even spiritual transformation, they were hoping to accomplish here in the U.S. And it's been remarkably successful, I would say. Has it had a lot of unintended consequences? Yes. But all of this business with compulsory schooling kicks off around the same time that Margaret Sanger and others are making their push for abortion or what will become abortion. What starts out as women's liberation, the planting of the seeds of the sexual revolution, what will be the LGBTQ plus movement that we have today, birth control. It starts with birth control and the implanting of an idea that women need to be liberated from having children. Now, what is that? That fits so nicely with eugenics. Convince the minority women that you don't want reproducing because you don't want any more of their kind, that it's actually their idea. See, this is actually liberation, right? We're freeing you from the nuisance of having children and having to raise them and take care of them and feed them and all that. See, we're liberating you. Marriage, you having to submit to your husband, what an oppressive notion. Men are abusive. You need to be liberated from your husband's and be free. And here's some birth control. I mean, A, you might not get married in the first place, but B, you might do what Margaret Sanger did and just sleep with everybody and sleep with anybody. And if you can take a pill, well, then you don't have to actually meet any responsibilities You're liberated from responsibility. You're liberated from submitting to a husband or sublimating your desires or ambitions to what would be in the best interest of your children that you're raising. But more to the point, you're being liberated from submission to God and to God's word and what God said. And the idea that liberal Christians so-called who I've been opposed for about as long as these things have been in the mix, gaining ascendancy, gaining dominance in culture. They've been opposed by men like Jake Gresham Machen. The liberal notion that you can have that liberation from God's authority and also at the same time eat your cake too, in the sense of calling yourself a Christian, it is antichrist. It's a false gospel. Machen was right. It's a false gospel. This is not the same gospel. We do not have the same Jesus. It's as bad and perhaps even worse in some ways compared with what the Mormons believe about Jesus being a created being and God having sex with his mother and having been a man himself 
in a previous universe, but having done a really bang up job. So he got his own universe. He gets to be God over this universe because he did a really fine job in the other universe or whatever. That's nonsense. Or at least that is not what Christians have believed for 2000 years. It's made up. It's a lot of hokum. I'm sorry, but it's not true. But it came from a very similar place to where John Dewey was coming from in promoting this progressive model of public schooling. It came from a very similar place, which is to say, there are all these ideas circulating around. There's all this debate, all this division. It's too confusing. Let's make up something new. But it's actually nothing new. There's no new thing under the sun. It's as bad, and in some ways worse, than the Muslims and Muhammad having an angel appear to him and then him being suicidal because he thought it was a demon. And then all of a sudden he's got this mandate to make war for monotheism, to enslave, to kill. That's not Jesus. I mean, there is Jesus in the Muslim eschatology, but he is not the Jesus of 2,000 years of Christian belief. He actually looks a lot like the Antichrist. If you look in depth at what is said of who the Muslims believe Jesus is when he comes again, it's like a mirror image of our Jesus as Christians. And actually, they believe in a Christ and an Antichrist, but they've got them flipped. They've got them switched to where we can't be right all at the same time. Their Jesus actually is killing Christians for believing in a false Christ. Their Jesus says, oh, no, I'm, I'm not God. Anybody who believes that I'm God should be killed. And then he proceeds to set about doing just that, killing the people who say that Jesus is and was and forever will be co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial with the Father. But the progressive model of compulsory schooling is of a piece with the eugenics movement. And that's a disturbing thought, particularly when we start to overlay a number of things that, apart from this as a unifying theory, are just very, very confusing. They're very confusing. And you wonder to yourself, why isn't anything changing? Why, why is this not getting any better? Consider the preponderance of... ADHD diagnoses in American public schools. Consider behavioral problems with boys in particular. Now consider that sports ends up being this default de facto laboratory testing ground to see who the fittest are that would get to mate. And it's a kind of brainwashing. It's a kind of, dare I say it, spiritual, mental, emotional, neutering that happens with young men in our society. And I think this is a big part of why testosterone levels and sperm counts are going down and down and down and down and down and down. In conjunction with the birth control being given to women in the name of liberation, they're being liberated from God's design and intentions for them, but nevertheless, they're being liberated. And when they're on the birth control pill, they are more attracted to men with less masculine features. At the same time, the public schools are helping to make sure that the men with the most masculine features are the ones who are encouraged to reproduce, even as those who are, shall we say, considered less fit for a multitude of reasons. One could be that they're troublesome. One could be that they're unhealthy. One could be that they have weird ideas. 
They argue with the teacher. They get into trouble. But think of what kind of trouble they actually get into and how that's typically determined. Those who are deemed unfit to survive are in many ways discouraged discouraged so that they don't reproduce and so that they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the means to reproduce, actually. So it's an all-of-the-above approach. It's actually it's very, very sophisticated. It's very, very clever, also very evil. And that's why it's not getting any better. That's why suicide, teen pregnancies, substance abuse, low literacy rates don't actually prompt a paradigm shift or a significant foundational change or even a significant reevaluation. The or else is very important to take into consideration for all of us. The or else, if you don't like what the public schools are doing, what they're teaching, what they're producing, always around, or else what, right? Are you prepared to actually get your kids out of the public schools? That's the big question for those who object. But for those who actually defend the public schools and they work within them and they maintain that they're good enough, they're or else, if they're at the very, very top and they know the history of progressive schooling, compulsory schooling, the Prussian model that was brought into the U.S., but they think that that all is justified and they're going to continue on as planned, they're or else, apart from God's word informing their view of God and man and the arc of history and human nature and where we're, where we come from, where are we, how did we get here, where are we going, what are we supposed to be about, without God's word informing, what is informing? Well, what is informing is a Darwinian and naturalistic and materialistic view of man, which essentially in a techno uh, logical age or in a, in a technopoly, as Neil Postman would say, has us increasingly seeing man as machine. In a Darwinian sense, if you go more of the organic uh, biological direction, you're looking backwards, it has us seeing man as an animal and treating man as an animal. Now, don't get me wrong. Biblically, even, we do see man being treated or talked about or regarded as an animal here, there, and throughout as a certain kind of animal in some allegorical passages. The righteous are bold as a lion, for instance. It doesn't mean that the righteous are actually lions, but they're bold as a lion. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, that's a good thing, right? It's good to be bold, despite what the people who want to unify on the most simple of terms without debate, without consideration, without study, without cross-examination, despite what they would say, it is good to be bold as a lion. But more significant than man being compared to an animal in God's word is man being made in God's image. And more to the point, man being treated in such and such a way or acting himself in such and such a way because it all belongs to God. We ourselves belong to God. The one and others belong to God. And that places limits on how you would otherwise dispose of man as just an animal, how you would treat him 
like you would treat an animal. Apart from God, if you follow some of the argumentation of the veganism proponents and the synthetic meat, artificial meat proponents, and the climate change hysterians, you have to, in the interest of consistency, start to treat animals in a humane way like they are humans, and you have to humanize animals because well, I wouldn't treat people that way. And that's the kind of argument that's made by the PETA people for the eating of tasty animals. I'm sorry. No, that's not, that's not it. That's not the real one. That's the making fun of the real one. Uh, you know, you wouldn't treat a person like this. So therefore you shouldn't treat animals like this. Well, the inverse would also follow that if you would treat animals in such and such a way, you would therefore also treat people in such and such a way. Right? So then if, let's say we're talking about invasive species in the Florida Everglades, a lot of boa constrictors and pythons that are not native to the Florida Everglades have escaped or been released by people who were keeping them as pets and then didn't keep track or decided they didn't want to have them anymore. And they have established a breeding population that is extraordinarily successful in the Everglades. These pythons have almost no effective predator to check them except for man, except for man. They're eating alligators. They're eating deer. They're eating uh, pretty much anything and everything. And they are proving very successful at the expense of all the other animals in the Florida Everglades. And when they're little, they're eating the little things. And when they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they're eating bigger and bigger things. And so you have, when it comes to the management of ecology or of environments, you have man taking responsibility for the fact that, well, these things are here because we brought them here and it's our fault. And so we've got to fix it. But what is the fix? The fix is to destroy these animals, to hunt them down and kill them. And this is not just with regards to boa constrictors and pythons in the Everglades, but it's true all over the world. That's what we do with invasive, invasive uh, species, rather, is if we're managing the ecosystem and trying to restore balance to it, we are eliminating those invasive species, particularly if they are very successful in that environment and they're not supposed to be there as we think of it, as we see it. The flip side is when you see proposals passing in Colorado or Montana or other places to, let's say, for instance, reintroduce wolves because wolves used to be here and we killed them all off. What you should understand is that is man seeing himself as the one who needs to restore balance to the ecosystem. And that's exactly the kind of scientific argument or scientistic argument, depending on who you're listening to. That is advanced for why we have to over and against what this is going to do to ranchers and farmers or hunters or people who live in rural areas, regardless of what it might do or what implications it might have for their livestock or their pet dogs or their pet cats or even their children and themselves. The reintroduction, reintroduction of wolves is presented as a moral imperative, as a necessary thing. 
as an inevitable thing. We must do this or else this ecosystem will never be healthy. Now, follow my train of thought here in a disturbing direction. What do you think is going to be done when man is being described increasingly as an invasive species? What is the solution there? Well, it's the exact same solution as with any other animal if man is regarded as merely another animal. And on the flip side, if man is regarded as just a machine, a very advanced biological machine, then pay attention to all this talk of recycling and we've got to get rid of uh, you know, the internal combustion engine vehicles to make way for the electric vehicles. But what do they do? What is done? What is done with the obsolete machines that are no longer seen as useful? And more to the point, can't be disposed of just any old way. They need to be disposed of in a very specific way so that they don't contaminate the environment or pollute the environment or poison the water supply or what have you. What is done with machines that are obsolete and that are regarded as uh, suboptimal in their performance, if not completely non-functioning. What is done with the machines is that they're all gathered up and destroyed. What's done with the animals that are regarded as invasive species is that they're hunted down and destroyed, or they are spayed and neutered. And so what we have to start thinking about here is with regards to features that otherwise don't make any sense because we're presuming a certain view of the world is held in common by the people who are running these big institutions, these big sectors of American society in particular, or even global society, global initiatives like the WEF or the United Nations. What we have to appreciate is that if they do not share our worldview and our view of God and our view of ourselves and our view of man relative creation, they are not necessarily going to perceive problems in the same way that we do, nor are they going to perceive the solutions to those problems in the same way that we do. Well, insofar as they start seeing problems where we don't see problems, and the science as they're presenting it doesn't make sense, given our worldview, our, pre- our, our presuppositions, insofar as when we present solutions or we argue against certain solutions that they're advancing because those solutions, well, wait a second, those don't make sense. Because how does that fit in to our worldview? When they tune us out or silence us or marginalize or discredit us by calling us some ugly thing that equates to unpersoning us, what we have to consider is that all of the above is due to us having fundamentally different worldviews. And it's not, first and foremost, a question of who has money and who doesn't, who has power and who doesn't. Not first and foremost. At its root, it has to do with who believes what. And as a consequence, who is allowed to have influence and power and amass wealth and who isn't. So in other words, it's a two-tiered system whereby again and again, we see this when the science doesn't support the initiative or the science that's been presented doesn't support the initiative as stated. 
those who point out, who have credentials, who have some amount of power and standing and authority and credibility, they are systematically stripped of all of the above, and then the whole matter is papered over and called things like misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. Those are the excuses given by big tech, by the status quo for censorship. What that should tell us is that they do not regard us as being in any way equal partners in either assessing the problems or coming up with constructive solutions. Now, we can make those arguments. We can say, well, hey, we're looking at these problems too, and we've got some other ideas for solutions. When they tune us out, it's not because... (laughs) It's not because, you know, they really thoroughly uh, misunderstood the way that we see the problem and what solutions we're presenting. It's because in certain ways they see us as the problem. So they're not able to conceive of us perceiving the problem because we are the problem as they see it. Insofar as we are the problem, but they're actually saying that these are the problems, and we're not buying it increasingly, well then, what we might find is their sense of urgency ratchets up and up and up and up. Their sense of urgency ratchets up and up. And it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, John Taylor Gatto speaks to this when he says that the education system is designed to instill ignorance and motivate by fear and ensure conformity and it, it is not actually education. It's schooling, but that is to say it's obedience training, first and foremost. It's psychological conditioning. It is social engineering, first and foremost, for those who 100 years ago or thereabouts were deemed unfit. And so this is of a piece with how masters in the South prior to the American Civil War very often didn't want their slaves to learn to read. Now, some did, I grant, but they were doing a dangerous thing in some jurisdictions where it was explicitly against the law. The slaves don't need to know that. They don't need to know how to read because if they read, they might read books where they get ideas. And those ideas might lead to them challenging the authority of their masters or trying to become free men. And so actually, it was seen as a threat for the slaves to learn to know because then they might want to be free and freedom for them would be very unprofitable and troublesome. It would be disruptive. And so the end run that is done around that potentiality is to ensure that they're kept in a state of ignorance, but then the very cruel and the very, um, let's say corrupt, let's just say corrupt the very disingenuous and wicked line of argument that follows after. And this happens with regards to American public schooling. And it happened in the antebellum South is that you start seeing the argument being, well, that we have to keep them in a state of ignorance and we have to keep them in a state of slavery and we have to make all their decisions for them. And we have to dispose of them this way. And we have to treat them this way, this cruel, abrasive way, exploitative way because they're so ignorant. Well, wait a second. Aren't they ignorant because you kept them in a state of ignorance? You withheld information from them? You actively punished anyone who tried to give them information? Or if they tried to get it for themselves, you actively punished 
the slaves themselves, the students themselves, if they thought outside of the box, you penalized that, you disincentivized that, you marginalized that, you made examples of those who represented that to the rest. Ah, but see, if if the goal, if the goal is not so much truth, then even asking that question is more or less a waste of your breath. Because what they will perceive is that this is not actually a question, it's an accusation, and it's an affront to their honor. And now it's pistols at dawn, except you don't get a pistol. (laughs) So consider with me, if you will, and we're running low on time, much, much more could be said. And I do hope you'll check out John Taylor Gatto's lecture, A Short Angry History of Modern Schooling. But just to pull one figure, and this is not supposed to be exhaustive, this is not a silver bullet to kill the werewolf of (laughs) your perception of the American public schools as being in any way redeemable or excusable at the root, at the foundation. Consider with me the curious case of a David Starr Jordan, who is mentioned in Gatto's lecture, Wikipedia says about him that he was the first chancellor of Stanford University from 1913 to 1916. He was also the first president of Stanford University from 1891 to 1913. Prior to that, he was the seventh president of Indiana University from 1884 to 1891. He was born in Wyoming County, New York, 1851. He died in Stanford, California, 1931. A little bit about David Starr Jordan. Jordan was born in Gainesville, New York, and grew up on a farm in upstate New York. His parents made the unorthodox decision to educate him at a local girls' high school. His middle name, Starr, does not appear in early census records and was apparently self-selected. He had begun using it by the time that he was enrolled at Cornell. He said that it was an honor of his mother's devotion to the minister, Thomas Starr King. Be it known, Thomas Starr King was an American Universalist and Unitarian minister, influential in California politics during the American Civil War. He was also a Freemason, spoke zealously in favor of the Union, and was credited by Abraham Lincoln with preventing California from becoming a separate republic, he is sometimes referred to as the orator who saved the nation. Fun fact there. But back to David Starr Jordan. He was inspired by Louis Agassiz to pursue his studies in ichthyology. That would be the study of fish. He was part of the pioneer class of undergraduates at Cornell University and graduated in 1872 with a master's degree in botany. He wrote in his autobiography, The Days of a Man, quote, During the three years which followed my entrance as a belated freshman in March 1869, I completed all the requirements for a degree of Bachelor of Science, besides about two years of advanced work in botany. Taking this last into consideration, the faculty conferred on me at graduation in June 1872 the advanced degree of Master of Science instead of the conventional bachelor's degree. It was afterward voted not to grant any second degree within a year after the bachelor had been received. I was placed quite innocently in the position of being the only graduate of Cornell 
to merge two degrees into one. His master's thesis was on the topic, The Wildflowers of Wyoming County. Jordan initially taught natural history courses at several small Midwestern colleges and secondary schools. Jordan obtained a medical degree, MD, from Indiana Medical College in 1875. The Indiana Medical College in Indianapolis had opened in 1869 and closed its doors in 1878 and has no relation to any other past or extant medical school in Indiana. He wrote in his autobiography that while teaching at Indianapolis High School, quote, I was able to spend some time in the medical college from which in the spring of 1875, I received the scarcely earned degree of doctor of medicine, though it had not at all been my intention to enter into that profession. Jordan taught comparative anatomy at the college the following year, 1876. An unrelated history of American medicine observes Once a university was closed, it was difficult to ascertain whether someone actually graduated from it. And that's interesting. That's a very, very interesting little fact. He was then accepted into the Natural History Faculty of Indiana University, Bloomington, as a professor of zoology in 1879. His teaching included his version of eugenics, which, quote, sought to prevent the decay of the Anglo-Saxon Nordic race by limiting racial mixing, and by preventing the reproduction of those he deemed unfit, end quote. Hmm. <laughs> Stanford presidency. We'll skip on down. In March 1891, he was approached by Leland and Jane Stanford, who offered him the presidency of Leland Stanford Junior University, which was about to open in California. Andrew White, the president of Cornell, had been offered the position, but instead recommended Jordan to the Stanfords based on an educational philosophy fit with the Stanford's vision of a non-sectarian co-educational school with a liberal arts curriculum. Jordan quickly accepted the offer, arrived at Stanford in June 1891, and immediately set about recruiting faculty for the university's planned September opening. Pressed for time, he drew heavily On his own acquaintances, most of the 15 founding professors came either from Cornell or Indiana University. That first year at Stanford, Jordan was instrumental in establishing the university's Hopkins Marine Station. He served Stanford as president until 1913 and then chancellor until his retirement in 1916. The university decided not to renew his three-year term as chancellor in 1916. As the years went on, Jordan became increasingly alienated from the university. While he was chancellor, he was elected president of the National Education Association. Jordan was a member of the Bohemian Club and the University Club in San Francisco. Jordan served as a director of the Sierra Club from 1892 to 1903. He had a summer home on Dolores Street on what was called Professor's Row in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. Now, here's a section on eugenics, and this is important. But before I get into it, let me point out a couple of things just briefly. One, while he was chancellor of Stanford University, he was elected president of the NEA. Why is that significant? And what is the NEA? Only this, the largest labor union in the U.S. It represents public school teachers and other support personnel, faculty and staffers at colleges and universities, retired educators and college students preparing to become teachers. Kind of a big deal They have just under 3 million members that are headquartered in Washington, D.C. Per the NEA website, our mission is to advocate for education professionals and to unite our members and the nation to fulfill the promise of public education to prepare every student to succeed in a diverse and interdependent world. 
the NEA, by the way, is very important to the creation of the Federal Department of Education. And get this, this is wild stuff. You can't make it up. According to Wikipedia, their support for creating a Federal Department of Education was joined by the Ku Klux Klan, which they did not distance from. As a result, Catholics who held a mutual disdain for the Klan viewed the NEA as promoting an effort to dismantle parochial education. Hmm. How about that? Not exactly the most comfortable of associations. That's before we even mention anything about Jordan being a member of the Bohemian Club. And time doesn't permit me to even briefly explain what that is, in case you don't know. But do look it up. The Bohemian Club. Some wild, wild stuff. (laughs) Some wild stuff can be found in no time flat about the Bohemian Club. How much of it is true? God only knows. But that he served as a director of the Sierra Club is also significant. The Sierra Club was founded in 1892 in San Francisco by Scottish-American preservationist John Moore. My great-great-uncle, J. Horace McFarland, was a contemporary and compatriot of John Moore, uh, also a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. Uh, For all I know, he knew David Starr Jordan. I don't know. But it is interesting that these go together, the Bohemian Club, the NEA, the KKK, Stanford University, the Sierra Club. Are you starting to get a picture of how it all could be part of a larger worldview, right? And I'm not saying that to be a part of any of these organizations is the same as to be a part of all of them. I'm not suggesting that. And I'm not suggesting guilt by association for everybody working in all of these organizations. That's not what I'm suggesting. But if the people who helped to found them held some common views, some common goals, enough to where they could trade back and forth, being the very tippy top of each of them around the same time. It's pretty remarkable and not without consequence, not without consequence. But moving on, eugenics. In 1899, Jordan delivered an essay at Stanford on behalf of racial segregation and racial purity. In the essay, Jordan claimed that, quote, for a race of men or a herd of cattle are governed by the same laws of selection, end quote. Jordan expressed great fears and phobias for racial degeneration that would result unless great endeavors were put forward to maintain, quote, racial unity. And once again, let me just reiterate that unity, if it is founded on the wrong things, is not a good. It is not beneficial and it does not honor God. If unity is founded on corrupt principles, that is not the kind of unity that God calls us to. Take note, take very careful note of that fact here. Continuing on from Wikipedia. One of Jordan's main theses in the essay was that his goals for an ideal society are better engendered by peace than war. His argument against warfare contended that it is detrimental because it removes the strongest men from the gene pool. Jordan asserted, quote, future war is impossible because the nations cannot afford it, end quote. As one commentator put it, quote, though he found meager evidence to support his preconceptions, he still confidently asserted that always and everywhere 
War means the reversal of natural selection, which, by the way, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Continuing on, though, Jordan was president of the World Peace Foundation from 1910 to 1914 and president of the World Peace Conference in 1915 and initially opposed American entry into World War I, although he changed his position in 1917 after he became convinced that a German victory would threaten democracy. Soon after it was first delivered, the essay was published by the American Unitarian Association, copyright 1902, under the main title of The Blood of the Nation, and a subtitle of A Study of the Decay of Races Through the Survival of the Unfit. Multiple editions of that version followed over the next few years. An expanded version of the essay was delivered in Philadelphia at the 200th anniversary of Benjamin Franklin's birth in 1906 and printed by the American Philosophical Society. The following year, an expanded version of the original essay with an embossed cover was published by Beacon Press in Boston under the new main title, The Human Harvest, and the same subtitle. This new version was dedicated to Jordan's older brother, Rufus, who had volunteered to fight in the American Civil War and, according to Jordan, was part of the Human Harvest of 1862. In 1910, the original and slimmer version of the essay was again published by the American Unitarian Association in a, quote, present, less expensive form to ensure the widest possible distribution, end quote. In 1915, Jordan published an, quote, extended treatise on the same subject, end quote, titled War and Breed, and again through the Beacon Press in Boston. Here Jordan defines and begins to employ the relatively recent term eugenics and its opposite, dysgenics. In 1928, Jordan served on the initial board of trustees of the Human Betterment Foundation, a eugenics organization that advocated compulsory sterilization legislation in the United States. He then chaired the first Committee on Eugenics of the American Breeders Association, from which the California program of forced deportation and sterilization emerged. Jordan then went on to help found the Human Betterment Foundation as a trustee. The foundation published Sterilization for Human Betterment. You might be wondering to yourself, what does it matter? Who cares? Who cares what David Starr Jordan thought about eugenics and about sterilization and about making sure that unfit persons would not reproduce? Who cares? You might think to yourself, well, Stanford University, that's just one school. Hold on a second. Stanford is home to the Persuasive Technologies Lab, which has been extraordinarily, extraordinarily influential on the development of our most familiar brands online, in social media, in video gaming, our smartphone technology. A lot of very addictive apps are developed by students who come out of the Persuasive Technologies Lab in Palo Alto, California. Not for no reason are they nudging, nudge, nudge, nudging us. And not for no reason are they big-time supporters, diehard supporters of abortion. Because abortion is important to the eugenics program that they are still stuck on. Euthanasia is not as big of a deal because eh, those people, they've already done their damage. But euthanasia, I mean, really, if you can justify 
culling the herd in its infant stage because you regard mankind as a herd of cattle, well, then you can also justify culling the herd with the older, wicker, uh, older weaker, uh, sicker members so that they're not a drain on resources, right? He studied fish. He studied plants. He wasn't just the first chancellor and the first before that president of Stanford University. He was also the head of the NEA, also a big-time player in the eugenics movement. Education and eugenics, this is what comes of not believing in the truth of God's word. You know, it's so funny to me, and funny not in an amusing way, not in a lighthearted way, but odd, right? Funny as an odd, like something smells funny, that he chose Star for his middle name. It wasn't given to him by his parents at birth. He chose the name Star after a Unitarian minister. That's pretty interesting to me. Now, whatever the guy did, if he saved the nation during the Civil War by speaking out against California being its own separate republic, he was a Unitarian. His mom was raised as a Unitarian. I have some family on my mother's 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 side who were Unitarians, and I have seen come down through the generations the fruit of Unitarian belief. And it's so curious to me that to be Unitarians, you would imagine that core word, unity, is going to mean, hey, we get together with everybody and we're very inclusive. But how is it that for those who want that in a religious sense or in a spiritual sense, let's study comparative religion so that we don't have to pick an exclusive view of God that would be restrictive for us. At the same time, they're also very interested at this point in American history, in David Starr Jordan's case, very interested in keeping the races separate. They're for unity within races. So racial unity, that's, that's what kind of unity we're looking for. But they're also for promoting certain educational models that are going to ensure that the best of the race breed. And those who are not fit do not. And if you're a teacher or if you're an administrator and you believe that you are saving the world by so doing, are you potentially going to give lower marks to students who have a well-developed contrary worldview to yours and they might pose a threat to your agenda? Are you potentially going to water them down, get them in line, psychologically condition them either to get with the program or to not be able to provide for their families, not be able to start businesses, run businesses successfully, be able to donate to their own initiatives that would promote human flourishing along biblical lines? Are you potentially, if you're a true believer of this at the very, very top, establishing the rules and the hierarchy that everyone else is going to have to abide by within the educational system? Are you potentially taking a hostile posture towards Orthodox Christianity because you see it as a threat, as a competing worldview to yours comprehensively? 
I mean, tell me this. Is it impactful at all? If it turns out to be true, if you check out Don Taylor Gatto's, uh, John Taylor Gatto's lecture, if you check it out and you check out the quotes and the references and the dates and all that, and you buy a book or two and you read it and you say, yeah, this checks out. Our public schooling in this country is engineered almost like a slaughterhouse for creativity, independent thought, and the impulse to fulfill the creation mandate according to God's word. It's like a slaughterhouse, very efficiently on an industrial scale, bringing little minds in, even from Christian homes, and murdering their faith in God, murdering their ability to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it because you regard man as an invasive species. This is of a piece with protecting Yosemite and Niagara Falls, which by the way, that's I've got his book right here on the shelf. I'm looking at it. It's right next to the internationalists. I've got the biography of J. Horace McFarland, A Thorn for Beauty. This is my mother's mother's uncle or great uncle rather. His claim to fame was that he saved Niagara Falls from development for a hydroelectric project. I kid you not. Also, he initiated what was known as the City Beautiful movement that swept across the United States in the early 20th century, wherein parks were built all over the U.S., beautiful parks with trees and flowers and ponds and rivers and gazebos and things like that in the middle of cities so that there would be beautification. These were seen as civic goods, just like a courthouse or a library or a church is a civic good. We need parks. We need nature in the middle of cities as a place for people to go and think and breathe and walk and exercise and all the rest. Is a conservation program whereby you are protecting beautiful parts of the country from development, perhaps easily compatible with the idea that we're going to teach children in such a way that we monitor who it is that should and shouldn't get a good job, get a high paying job or a low paying job, or have a hard time getting a job at all. Because what is that going to result in? Let me put it in these terms. If you have a young man from a Christian home who goes into a public school and his goals on the front end are to fulfill the dominion mandate. I want to get knowledge and understanding so that I can fulfill the great commission on the one hand, fulfill the dominion mandate on the other hand. And he goes in and in this climate, he's being bombarded with evolutionary theory, comprehensive sex education, critical race theory. And he argues the case because he's studying harder and cares more than most of his classmates do. They just want to get the grades. They just want to obey and do what they're told so that they get good grades. More to the point. But that is to say, we know it is a dirty little secret that their understanding of the material is not all they are being graded on. They are also being graded on obedience. Obedience to somebody who is not their mom, not their dad, and very likely is hostile to their Christian faith. Not necessarily, but very likely is. In a system that certainly is hostile to their Christian faith. Their Christian morals, their Christian cosmology, their Christian anthropology, their Christian political philosophy, if they have one. Most little kids don't have one, so they're easy to pick off. 
They're easy to either brainwash into obedience and submission to the secular paradigm or to retard. And when I say retard, what I mean is to slow down, to repress. Now, the grace of God will permit a young man coming up through that education system to still get a good job and still provide for his family and still protect his family despite the education system. But here's my question, friends. Why would we send our sons into a system that will either try to destroy their Christian faith or retard their ability to effectively live it out when they are adult men? Why would we do that? Why, why would we do that? I refuse to do that. And that's why we homeschool. This, this is why we homeschool. If they can't change your little boy or girl coming from a Christian home, believing that Jesus died for their sins and that they will live forever with him if they believe in him, if they can't change their mind to thinking that that's ridiculous and absurd and nobody believes that, well, then they have other ways of snipping and pruning in the garden of American society and in the garden of the world as they see themselves the rightful heirs to. Now consider this too. If you are a person of this kind, a person of the kind David Starr Jordan was, and if you do regard the masses as so many cattle that you have to manage, if you do think that way, and you are not particularly fearful of God's judgment or wrath on you ever, not now, not ever, then if there turns out to be quite a lot of collateral damage, can you not shrug just as easily as you would if you were a rancher and a cold snap came through? Or let's say you even just used the wrong feet, right? There's a heat wave and you use the wrong feet and that led to a whole bunch of deaths, thousands and thousands of deaths. Would you not shrug? You say, ah, man, that's really frustrating. You might say that's really frustrating, but you wouldn't feel any remorse necessarily per se. You would make adjustments according to what your bottom line is. And your bottom line is not necessarily, first and foremost, how self-actualized those cattle are going to be. If they're cattle, they're cattle. They're destined for the slaughter anyways. What's the difference? And in this way, at a certain point, our society, if there's not an interruption, but for the grace of God, we transition into being no better than the Mexica, taking captives from the surrounding tribes, walking them up the pyramid, cutting their hearts out of their beating chests and throwing them down. At the bottom, they get processed and turned into meals for the families of the priests. We hear that and we are rightly jarred and disturbed and shocked in our conscience if we know it, if we believe it. Now, be further shocked and appalled and disturbed at the thought that from a spiritual standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, from an intellectual standpoint, thereafter from a material and professional and social and political standpoint, that exact same mentality is at root with our education system and with the way that these big tech companies are constructed and how they operate, how these all alike are planned, designed, refined, implemented, rolled out, executed. These things are not free in an altruistic sense. They're free because the product is you. That goes for public schooling. Yes, you pay taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, 
how hard is it to convince the administrators to change their mind when this is coming from the top down? It's coming from the top down, from high command in the education system. And again, I would go back to how did we get the Department of Education in the first place? Through a collective push, a joint effort from the NEA, which is still with us, and the KKK, the NEA being chaired by David Starr Jordan. Centralize it. Let's get this controlled at the very, very top. We'll put our men at the very top to make sure that they're doing the right thing, doing the responsible thing, where responsibility is interpreted as the Bob Barker treatment in every way, in every way. First, psychologically, intellectually, emotionally. One last thought, and I got to run. It's interesting to me, my friend and neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, shared with me and our friend Roy Garcia a screenshot of a verse that he must have been reading here very recently. He was curious to get our thoughts on. And this verse is Romans eleven thirty-two. And for context, I'll read back from 30 and on down to 33. But Romans 11, 30 through 33 reads as follows. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And just for anyhow, let's continue on down to 34. For who has known the mind of Yahweh or who became his counselor? What does it mean that God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all? That's a very good question. And I fall back on verse 33. Verse 33 makes sense to me. (laughs) How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And yet, when I looked this passage up, particularly verse 32, about God shutting up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all, when I looked it up in my literal word app, literal word Bible app on my phone, I found a very curious thing with regards to this word disobedience. Would you know that that word disobedience actually in the original Koine Greek is apatheia? Apatheia. Why is that important? You might ask. I think I'm saying that right. Maybe it's apatheia. I'm not quite sure. But I think it's apatheia or apatheia. Now, another interesting word that's so very, very similar is apatheia. (laughs) And I could be saying them both wrong, or I could be saying them both right. But what's curious is how close these two words are. The one is translated disobedience in this passage in Romans 11, 32. The other is where we get our English word apathy from. Now, hear me out. Are these two words 
so close together because they're closely related? Or do they just sound very similar? Now, one potential one potential uh, meaning, according to Strong's Greek here for apatheia, is not persuaded, right? A, not patheo, or patho, patho, not persuaded. Properly understood, somebody who is not persuaded, referring to their willful unbelief or their refusal to be convinced by God's voice. And according to Helps Word Studies, this is the core meaning of the entire word family. Apeatheia, apeatheo, apeathes. All these cognates focus on man's decision to reject God's offer of faith, i.e. refusal to be persuaded in their heart concerning obeying his will or his word. That is not to say it's the same thing as ignorance, but this is you're presented with the option to believe and you refuse to believe. You consciously work against belief. Now, how much worse is it when instead of just being a rejecter yourself, refusing to be persuaded yourself, you also are refusing to let other people be persuaded and you're actively trying to encourage them to refuse to be persuaded as well. That's next level, next to next to next. And maybe these words are not so similar because they should be understood as being closely related, disobedience and a lack of suffering, a lack of passion, a lack of feeling, a lack of caring. That could be, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Maybe I need to do more of a deep dive study. Maybe I need to learn Koine Greek. Either way, though, do consider how one of the hallmarks John Taylor Gatto keyed in on regarding a feature of public schooling was that it makes them indifferent. Point number three, it makes them indifferent. Now, if the indifference is towards the things of God, toward God's word, towards God's character, towards his promises, towards his commands, towards his love, towards his salvation, towards his plans and purposes, what he would call them to. If it's that kind of indifference, that's a serious problem. And then it, and at that point, it is one and the same with this word that is translated disobedience. Apatheia or apathia, phonetic spelling is what biblehub.com says. At that point, it becomes one and the same. This apathy is disobedience. This disobedience is a factor of apathy or not caring. And on that point, whether we're talking obeying God in a big picture sort of a way, Great Commission for the Christian, dominion mandate for all mankind, to be taught to be indifferent, to be taught to be apathetic about all of that because someone else or a cabal of men have regarded themselves as gods and they have set these things up to conserve them for themselves because they see themselves, they regard themselves as the rightful controllers, conquerors of all that they see, we need to be mindful of what choices we make, what influences we don't just listen to because good luck, good luck not in our society, unless you're going to go be a hermit, buy a cabin in the Kentucky mountains, which sounds great. I mean, Kentucky's beautiful and land there is pretty cheap, but unless you're going to go become a, a hermit in the Kentucky foothills, 
if you're going to be a part of society in any way, shape, or form, if you're going to be in the world, even as you try to not be of the world, you're going to have to hear these things. And when you hear them, you should understand what it is that you're hearing and what the implications are. And be sober and vigilant for your adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.